Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm fine. I uh, sent you a, a picture of some something exciting the other day of me meeting Mike yes. Bat. Yes. Underground, so, overground, wombling free. The man who wrote all the Wombles hits and was inside, I think, some of the Wombles. He- he was inside the Wombles. The costumes. Wow. Yeah, there was nothing untoward going on. No, between no. I was interviewing him about the Beatles for this American radio show I was doing, and I was in... Underground, overground, wombling free. Where do you think he lives? The Wombles of Wimbledon. He lives in Wimbledon. If you were the man behind the Wombles, he would didn't you... invent the Wombles. No, that was a woman I think called Elizabeth Beresford, who was the author of it. He just was asked to write the theme music to the TV who show. Who was your favourite Womble? I think I liked Tobamori. Maybe mm. Orinoco. How about oh, you? Say Orinoco. Oh, great Uncle Bulgaria. Very good, yeah. Madame I Chalet. think probably the names were just brilliant. Well, th- that's when a baby Womble is born, they stick a pin in a map and that's where the- they get the name from. Is that right? I think so. I mean, they've dug that up from the dark recesses of my memory somewhere. And Bernard Cribbins was the narrator. I'd love to meet Bernard Cribbins. All right, what are we talking about this week then? Well, this week we're talking about the repair movement and an idea called the right to repair. Our consumption of electronics is rapidly increasing, and I speak, as we'll hear on the episode from personal experience, as people buy more phones, computers and electrical appliances. In fact, I think this applies to us both. 50 million tonnes of electronic waste is produced globally each year, and this is expected to more than double by 2050. And part of the problem is the difficulty of repairing products means it can be cheaper to replace them than fix them, with a massive impact on waste, resource use and carbon emissions. The right to repair is the idea that manufacturers should be forced to make products that are repairable. Last year, the EU passed world-leading legislation on it, and a number of countries are challenging the tactics being used to encourage consumers to replace products more frequently. We're talking to Adèle Chasson, who's part of a campaign in France that led to Apple being fined €25 million for deliberately slowing down old iPhones. Janet Gunter from the Restart Project, which runs Restart Parties to help people repair their products, and also campaigns on the right to repair, and Duncan McCann, who's been thinking about these issues at the New Economics Foundation. Hey, are you one for rolling your sleeves up and repairing things? Pencil behind your ear, toolkit out. It's not really me, is it? When but you I were growing up, was your dad one for fixing things? My definitely dad, My not. dad was always fixing things, and, and a way in which he'd fix my toys often was by sticking a knife into the gas fire until it was really hot, and then melting plastic toys back together oh so they all looked horribly deformed. So I mean, it's funny, we... we we kind of we kind of don't really we we don't really produce much of a hypothesis, do we? Because you had a dad that would repair things and you can't repair for toffee, and I had a dad that couldn't repair things and I can't repair for toffee either. So society's to blame is what you're saying. Well I don't know. I mean something maybe it's, it's genetics or <laughs> you know something yeah it's a good issue isn't it yeah and then we're joined this week live on tape from hollywood it's the larry sanders show hey now larry sanders is is going to be our guest now but unfortunately it's not gary shandling who sadly died r.i.p yeah. yeah um but it is it's an exciting guest Do you want to tell us about the other yes, larry sanders it's bernie sanders brother larry sanders larry who's 84 
is the older brother of Bernie, who's 78. Larry grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and has lived in the UK since 1969. Um, he was a Green Party councillor, um, and he's currently the Green Party spokesperson for health and social care, but we're going to be really mainly talking to him about all things Bernie. Wow. Feeling the burn. So, so that's what's coming up on this week's episode. We should just mention that there'll be another book club coming Club-in. out in the next couple yep. of days. But we're, we're accumulating quite the back catalogue now, aren't we? Quite the oeuvre. Yes. We've had Ian McEwan and his novel Machines Like Me. I really enjoyed our conversation with Ian. US-based TV host Rachel Maddow. And her book, Blowout, about the oil and gas industry, which is, I think, a really great book. And it's a really interesting conversation that we had with her. Michael Lewis. One of the finest nonfiction yeah, writers in the world. Author of The Fifth Risk. Rana Faruha, uh, Don't Be Evil, her book about a uh, big tech. Mariana Mazzucato. I'm really proud of the really interesting people we've had on. It's got its own feed. Do, do listen, do, do rate and review it, preferably well. So what's your reason to be cheerful? Speedo Mick. Go on. I met Spe- I was uh, covering on BBC Radio 5 Live the You've a, a been couple all of mornings the celebrities this honestly. I met Speedo Mick who is a man who walked from Land's End to John O'Groats in in just a pair of speedos. He's he's just <laughs> Finished, finished that walk. Um, was that he, was before, still, he was still wearing the Speedos. He was that came before in... or after you interviewed the skateboarding dog? <laughs> <laughs> He's raised uh, £340,000 well, for charity. Well, you just in Speedos and a hat. I mean, it was quite remarkable. He came into the studios at about half past six in the morning, just in Speedos and a woolly hat, having walked from Land's End to... Uh, what, he just... Yeah, he just got the idea in his head and he, he came in. And I, I can now say I've met Speedo Mick. How about you? What's your reason to be cheerful? What mine is, um, it's, it's, it's sort of got its own reason to be cheerful, but then it's sort of given me an idea. So, you know, we've talked on the, on the podcast before about designated survivor. Yes. Did you know that there is a Korean version of designated survivor? I mean, I thought maybe, one, maybe we should be franchising reasons to be cheerful. If anybody wants languages. to get in touch, yeah. I mean, clearly we're the English language version, but I think we'd be sort of hard-pressed to do the Korean language version. Yeah, d- definitely. Let's let's have our people talk don't to, you think to their people. Fran- do we have people? Well, not we really. Should get but, a person. Yeah, but, do, but don't you think there's a sort of franchising possibility? And that, the reason I say this is because I was with an Italian friend and she was saying that podcasts aren't really a thing in Italy. And in fact, she, she's a documentary maker and she was saying that they did this pitch for this... Um, documentary and, and the person they were pitching to said well we're not so keen on it being a tv documentary but it could be a podcast and she was rather insulted by this right. uh, and i said that she shouldn't be insulted and she should become the queen of italian podcasting definitely and we should get a little franchise fee definitely you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd so with us now we have Janet Gunter, who is co-founder of the Restart Project, and Duncan McCann making a return appearance on the podcast, senior researcher at the New Economics Foundation. Hello both. Hello. Uh, so Janet, let's start with you. You're wearing a Restart uh, t-shirt. Tell us about the, the Restart Project and the story behind it. Yeah, so um, we got started about six or seven years ago, and we heard about this thing in, in Holland called the Repair Cafe movement. But I'd been talking about with a colleague of mine who's been working in global development, so you know, bringing technology into really amazing social change projects um, in Africa and Latin America, about how wrong our use of technology started to 
feel, um, you know, back back home. And so um, we'd been kind of discussing this for quite a while, this notion that, you know, that not only are we wasting things, but we're just not really fully appreciating them and using them to their fullest. Um, and so we wanted to focus on things with uh, batteries and plugs because we felt like that was the, you know, that was one of the worst um, kind of examples the way we use things um, and also just because we really actually we have a background in technology like the early internet we used to love technology so we started hosting these events um, in our back garden in Camden and down in Lambeth where I live and, and what happens mm-hmm. at these events what, what well, are they so basically, as you can imagine, there's loads of people with broken stuff everywhere who are super frustrated. Um, but what we didn't know is that every neighborhood has like super enthusiastic people who want to share their fixing skills. So it, the whole thing just basically snowballed. We invited people. We didn't know how many fixers would come, you know, how much, um, how much we could actually really fix. And more people came to our first event than we could ever imagine who wanted to volunteer. Um, right. So these are the, yeah. the, the local fixers. Yeah. Well, and, some came from across London. Too, and what, yeah. did, what did people bring? People bring all sorts. Um, you know, it's a lot of the stuff is just the stuff that ke- keeps people connected. So it's laptops, it's mobiles, it's tablets. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of kitchen appliances, a lot of like hi-fi kit that people really love and want to keep. Um, so it's and then we get toys and all kinds of, you know, s- silly stuff as well. Yeah. Should we, Duncan? Should we? Because Janet set out in a way the solution, some of the solutions. Talk to us about the scale of the problem of electronic waste and why it should sort of bother us. Well, I think the scale is just something that's almost beyond imagination. So it's one of the fastest growing kind of waste streams that we have. Uh, And it's a waste stream that is particularly problematic because one, it contains loads of potentially harmful materials, especially things like batteries. Uh, But also when stuff gets old, it has lead, it can have cadmium in it. This stuff is poisonous once it gets out into the environment. So we need to kind of treat it properly. Um, And then on the other side, there's also that it's a hugely growing, you know, technology, electronics is integrating into more and more of our stuff. Uh, And so more and more of what we use on a day-to-day basis of what makes our life kind of modern uh, is electronics and so uh, those two things combined mean that it's something that we really do have to take note of i've got a, i've got a shameful confession well i was about to say don't we need to declare our well this i'm going to take my printer recently had a paper jam right i like tried to unjam it i couldn't every time i switched it back on it said paper jam so i just bought a new printer well printers are one of the perfect examples printers are almost always sold at next to nothing uh, where they get you is the ink, because ultimately they're going to make their money uh, after the fact. Uh, exactly. And Ed is holding up his three mobile phones. I mean, I think we should sort of, don't you think we should have full declaration here? So there's the iPhone 5, which was originally mine, mm-hmm. or is mine actually. <laughs> then there's your iPhone 8. So I was doing quite well because I recycled yours. Yes. But then it got. I've got a drawer full of old phones. But then it got really suffered during the election campaign. I mean, that wasn't just me. <laughs> uh, um, and it got very waterlogged. So it got these lines on it. So I've now succumbed to the iPhone 11. So I'm really. I mean, we'll come on to our own responsibility as well as the manufacturers. But what, what happened? So when I think about when I was growing up, there were things like TV repair shops everywhere. And then it just seemed to get to a point where people didn't get stuff repaired anymore. Because, I mean, it's, it's not like these objects are, are, are that cheap, but they're, often the cost of repair feels negligible. 
So it used to be that, you know, that people who fixed televisions had access to schematics, to repair manuals, and they had access to, you know, original parts from manufacturers. All of that has been massively scaled back. And so it's really hard, just like it is for us to do in a DIY or community setting, really hard for professionals to, to make a living. And it makes it that much more inconvenient for the average person to go out and find a repair. And I think there is evidence, isn't there, yeah. that this has speeded up. I mean, I just think back to my childhood we had a black and white telly until I was probably stop laughing, Joel. Uh, uh, we had a black, he's, he's googling black and white TV. <laughs> we we had a black and white telly until I must have been nine or ten, or yeah, or even a bit, maybe a bit older. And then we bought a colour telly, and then we had that for for, for like fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Until I had grown up and left home. Doesn't that your recollection? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And is it that things aren't built to last? Is it, or, or is it this? I mean, you wouldn't replace the, the telly every thing. two years, for example. The cost has been squeezed out of them. So I'll give you a good example of what fails in televisions often is capacitors. Like, like really, I'm making they're like the size of they're an inch yeah. or less, and they cost you know next to nothing. But manufacturers have been cutting costs and using ones that have been shown to be faulty sometimes and not giving you know adequate thought to that. And so the consequence of that is. I mean, literally a part that costs less than 20p is causing you to move on to the next telly. Is there evidence that people are replacing stuff more often than they used to? I, mean, I know the stuff is different, but... I think I think definitely. I mean, I think the phone is the perfect example. So I have a phone. Uh, I've had it for three years. And every couple of months, I get a call from my provider encouraging me to take out what they term a free upgrade but you know is actually something that i'm paying for over the course of 24 months well uh, phones are interesting though because yeah. phones like phone lifetime seem to have like plummeted and got and reached like almost like a rock bottom but they're coming back up again mm. and that's why there's a big battle with manufacturers over this right to repair because they're seeing as a threat as an existential threat to their business model so yeah um and but with household appliances definitely there's a whole body of academic research that shows that the product lifetime have decreased so you know it is true what everyone's experiencing at home it's been proven Um, and and let's talk about planned obsolescence because that is i mean this is not accidental it's not just you know i mean jeff's a klutz but it's not just as am i uh but it's not just about people who are klutzes who kind of you know spill water into their thing or whatever it's it's a it's a it's a conspiracy (laughs) well I mean, I'll make a declaration. So my declaration, I used to work for Cisco Systems for 10 oh. years. And so I was responsible. You're part of the conspiracy. I was responsible for their global end-of-life strategy for a number of years. Go on. Um, Tell us. And, the- you know, as designers, when people are designing products, uh, people are making choices. And so the decision about those capacitors, those little items, uh, and when, when designers are specking out what to fill their products with, each of those components comes with like a mean time between failure, which is like how long they expect the average life cycle of this product, this particular component to last. Um, and as designers and as, as most, especially around consumer electronics, it was less a pressure for Cisco because we're selling high end business to business equipment that is expected to last 10 to 20 years. So we weren't at kind of the sharp end of some of this. But when you're trying to design something at the, at the cost point of £20, £30, which much of our electronic equipment is priced at, you're necessarily squeezing that design cost. And so designers are making active decisions to put in components that have 
low life cycles. But at the request of like executives, let's be yeah, clear. Because yeah. designers and engineers are absolutely up for the challenge yes. of making longer lasting products. And we can we hear it from them all the time. Yeah. And what do you think it is that, because it's not, I mean, maybe capitalists have become more um, Greedy. cutthroat. But, you know, it's not like 30 years ago, people wouldn't have realized if they could persuade people to buy new things it would be better for them than them being repaired. What, 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 what's changed in this, do you think? Uh, so the mobile is such a great example, right? It's, yeah. it's like the ultimate emblem of like this kind of, I must, you know, yeah. upgrade. We've, upgrading used to be making the thing you had better. <laughs> but at some point, upgrading just became throwing that thing out and getting another one. And the mobile is very much an emblem of that. But And, and it, 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 we were starting to treat televisions the same way. And so, you know, I really think actually it was the way that they pushed out this kind of constant refresh cycle of the mobile that really changed a lot. And it's amazing is- that people used to queue up for, say, a record release. And then we got to a point <laughs> 10 years ago where people were queuing up outside the shop for the latest iPhone. And I got to a point, I mean, I don't, I don't upgrade every model now, but I got to a point where I was so obsessed by it. If they'd have just put the exact same phone in a slightly cooler design, I, I would have got it because I, it was the design I wanted, not the, not the functionality. And and I'm sure Apple's not the only offender, but they it's particularly notorious, isn't it? The iPhone business. For sure. I mean, there was the battery gate, but and there have been a couple other instances where Apple is essentially lining itself up to use software to lock down its its um, its products, whereby um, if, if any independent were to go in or DIY or were to go in and try and fix something, um, it trips like a, a software, you know, kind of block um, and that is really, you know, that's potentially really harmful and dangerous. And then Apple's just been the most visible in lobbying against, in every stage, the right to repair. So um, they're kind of setting themselves up for it, too. So, so what is the right to repair, then? Um, well, it's kind of all the things we've been discussing. So time was, you know, you could you could find the tools around and you could find a schematic or something to help you repair something. Um, and you didn't have to worry about a software lockdown or a copyright from some company. You just were able to take the thing you own and repair it. And um, that's what we, you know, we're pushing for again is some of the things we had before. And, and there is some uh, EU regulation that's been introduced. What's What's that? Yeah, well, last year there was—it's a groundbreaking regulation. Um, in the U.S., the right to repair movement kind of sprung up first, and it was kind of more like a, you know, kind of like a cowboy kind of let us repair the things we own, you know, damn it, that kind of thing. Whereas the EU approached it from a slightly different perspective, which is, you know, this consumption is destroying the planet, and um, so they came at it from a kind of eco angle and they you know those labels on the uh, white goods on appliances that talk about eco efficiency well they've included the whole of the life cycle of the appliance in that so that means that we have to take into account manufacture and the the length of the life cycle of things and so it's game changing and so last year they passed this regulation for design for repair among other things and what will that mean in practice do you think yeah, in practice, it, it for, could, for an mm-hmm. iPhone, for example, did uh-huh. it change things? Well, that's the next. So those were just for a couple of white goods, a couple of you know iconic, like your washing machine. Um, so it's got to be repairable, dishwasher. basically. Yeah, but we're fighting for that to be expanded to all the other stuff we've just been talking about for for this year. Yeah, and and what impact will Brexit have on this, if anything? Are we going to have even stronger regulation around uh, right to repair? Well, the good thing is it's probably unlikely that they will choose to spend any time kind of 
advocate, you know, specifically deregulating it. Um, so, you know, on the transition day, all the regulations will transfer over uh, that are applicable to the UK. Um, but over the long term, uh, it's hard to see that we're that this government is going to, you know, beef up some of those regulatory uh, obligations. Well, and, and continue to stay aligned with them. So, we're, you know, some of the stuff we're campaigning for now, which is, you know, right to repair for smartphones, you know, better laptops, all of that, we won't benefit because it's, it's coming down the line. And if we're being optimistic, we're obviously not tied to the EU in regulations in the same way, which could have significant downsides. But if we wanted to go further, what would we do? How would we go better than the right to repair? Well, I know straight away. So the ones that yeah. passed last year, um, the access to spare parts and repair documentation were, are only really going to be made available to what they call professionals. And we think that DIYers and uh, community repair should have access as well. So that's simple. And goes beyond and going beyond these white goods into yeah, absolutely. And we know that there, you know, Defra's interested in that. What do the manufacturers say about all this? Well, I think externally they're talking about this information being proprietary, that uh, they talk the narrative of kind of consumer protection. What about all these people that are just going to at their home be dismantling all this stuff? There's current, there's electricity going through this, all the dangers. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Um, I think those are some of the kind of the external narratives. Um, but I think from it's more interesting kind of what how what these companies are t- more talking about internally. And there it's really about hitting the bottom line. I wrote an article kind of last year and it, the, the, a sales drop in Apple is specifically linked to some of these kind of repairing people using their iPhones uh, for longer. Basically, what they their tune is, it's like the opposite of your podcast. It's like reasons to be fearful. So it's like, you know, you're going to... Good. That'll be our sequel. Well, yeah, you're going to, you know, you're going to poke your battery and, you know, chaos will ensue. Let's say that you, people use their iPhones, smartphones, whatever, for longer, what difference can that make to climate and carbon emissions? Yeah, well, this is one of the things that, you know, is hidden from us when we buy things is the carbon impact that's gone into manufacture. And while, you know, maybe 72 kilos of carbon per device doesn't seem that much, if you multiply it at the scale of like 200 million in Europe or almost 2 billion uh, phones globally, it starts to get really big. Um, so I believe the, the European Environmental Bureau estimated something like if you take um, if you extend the life cycle of phones, I believe it's just a year, all the phones um, you get you get in the in the magnitude of is it two million cars off the road? Um, I mean, we're talking wow. about and we're, so we're talking about big big numbers here. Yeah. You know, maybe we think about you know let's not leave our phones charging if they're already charged up or whatever, but actually nearly 3 quarters of the environmental cost of our phones is the manufacturer and the disposal, not the actual use. Yeah, so that's the thing about so with with some of the heating and cooling equipment or maybe your gigantic television, um, we have to take into account. How do you know? The, the, <laughs> the, <laughs> I just seem like the time. Yeah, the the, the you you know oh. the use is significant, right? Because you're heating and cooling or you're you're using a big screen. But with the smaller stuff, it's absolutely the like upwards of seventy eighty percent of the energy ever used is used in its production. So it has a big consequence. And the other thing about recycling is that we're not recycling everything. So when we recycle this stuff, we just basically we throw it in a big shredder. And we can get a lot of the materials out, but not the ones like some of the ones like tantalum, some of the ones like rare earths um, that are extremely environmentally taxing to mine. And so we're just literally just mining them, using them, throwing them. It'd be good to talk about the role of us as consumers in this, because 
clearly the manufacturers are highly responsible and culpable here. But I sort of feel like, don't we need to sort of... I'm looking at you, obviously. All right, uh, so my, my vacuum cleaner's broken. What do I, what do, I well, do no, instead not, of... Well, what do I do instead of going and buying a new well, one? Well, I suppose maybe it's more... Isn't it also that we are... You know, we've become, you know, sort of just kind of conspicuous consumers, haven't we? So, like, you're hooked on the, having the latest yeah, thing. Yeah. So it's, we have to change our behaviour. I, I, I guess but, I'm asking about but that. But I think I really think that it, like we need to. While we can take some responsibility, yeah. we always need to look at the system because, yeah. um, okay, you know. So why is it that it's hard for you to source a spare part for your vacuum cleaner? You Honestly, know? I went on Google. I mean, I, I wouldn't know where to begin yeah. fixing a vacuum cleaner. Look at these hands. They've never done a day's work in their life, <laughs> as my dad will often tell me. But um, I, I wouldn't know where to begin. And I, I typed in the brand of the vacuum cleaner and then my neighborhood into Google. And I couldn't find anything that didn't look like some kind of weird aggregator sort of repair site. Okay. That well, just to say, if you're in London, we've been working on a repair directory for reliable businesses. So go check, check that out if you're in London. So what would I search? Restart? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, we just need to look at that, those system level issues. So, you know, and why is it, for example, that you don't know the expected lifetime of that vacuum when you're buying it? I mean, I, I think it is true to say that if I think about Jeff's iPhone 8, which became my iPhone 8, I if I could have got rid of the lines from the water damage and got the button to be working, uh, or even actually just got rid of the lines, I would probably have carried on with it whereas i'm looking at your new phone and i can see that it's got three little lenses on the camera at the back and i think why hasn't mine got three i want three <laughs> so in the coming utopia of the jeffocracy if i was to make you both in charge of some kind of ministry for repair i mean pick what you want to for ministry repair isn't it? Well, there, there we go repair ministry yeah um what, what is the first thing you would do around this on day one we know that manufacturers have so much information about their products so i guess the first thing we'd like to know is how long have you predicted this product will last um and while we're at it tell us about the environmental impacts in production because they have this information um and if you know if, if i have the ability to do anything just anything at all right away that's the thing i'd like to see is just force them to publish it um, there's so many other things I'd love, but that's the that's a start. Publish and be damned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing that I'd like to do is kind of put an impact on government procurement, so that all that government procurement would have to be with manufacturers, and there are manufacturers we haven't really mentioned them uh, today who do focus on repair because uh, that can really drive a market. Give us an example. Well, I mean. The kind of the laptop, the PC laptop world is a world that's kind of really comfortable with, uh, with uh, taking things apart, upgrades, uh, so and there are specific manufacturers, you know, PCs, like PCs, Dell. Who Max, are, oh, right. Yeah, so definitely it's oh, the I PC see. world that's right. much yeah. more comfortable with integrating different parts from different manufacturers. Oh, I need more speed oh well i'll just upgrade my ram i don't need to buy a whole new yeah. thing they take longer um, to switch on though well like sometimes you have to wait three minutes and and that's part of the operating system so maybe try you know ubuntu over like the microsoft product and you might find that your your product's actually loading even faster Our black than and white telly used to take a couple of minutes to warm up and then at the end of the day did you watch yeah. it disappear yeah, to a yeah, little yeah, dot yeah. as they played the national anthem yeah yeah definitely um i think they've got the job definitely <laughs> um janet your cafes, mm-hmm. how do people find them? Um, well, we call ours parties, but it's the same thing. Yeah. Should um, I bring my vacuum yeah. cleaner? 
Yeah, absolutely. I've always wanted to take a vacuum where, cleaner to a party. Where do they take? Where so are they? So we host events in London, all across London. We we have a network of groups that host events in London. But anywhere in the UK, you can find um, you can find a repair event near you. We list as many as we can across the UK. And so how do people go? They go to your website. Yeah, the restartproject.org. Um, or you can look at the Repair Cafe International website. They also have events there. Well, look, I'm convinced. Aren't you convinced? Definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited about getting my vacuum cleaner fixed. Can I put a plug in Definitely. for it? So in, in the European Right to Repair yeah. campaign, we are, um, we're pushing for smartphones to be included in Brussels' plans for the future. And there's a deadline coming up, and we'd really appreciate signatures on a petition. Um, it's just repair.eu slash smartphones. So... And what about here? Well, this is the thing: is that um, the European campaign incorporates Norway, for example. Right. So let's you know, be positive and yeah. still be part of Europe and push where we can. And and we can show that if you know in the UK there's massive support for this, that that can also help quiet some of the other Euro skeptics in Brussels. So yeah. Okay, Janet and Duncan, thank you very much. We're coming to the cafe with our vacuum cleaners, our iPhones, and our printers, aren't we? Yeah. I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Adèle Chasson, who is Advocacy Manager at Holt à l'Obsolescence Programme. Tell us the story behind your organization. The NGO Holt à l'Obsolescence Programme could translate in English to uh, Stop Planned Obsolescence. And it's a French NGO created in 2015. And its goal is really to unite as many citizens as possible um, to have more more durable and repairable products by uh, influencing both the law, the public decision makers, and also private companies uh, towards this goal. There was really an opportunity when um, plant obsolescence was banned in the law in France in 2015 in uh, in an energy transition law, because it was the only the first country in the world to ever uh, do that, and so it really gave citizens an opportunity to actually apply their rights and. Uh, sort of uh, punish companies who who would do planned obsolescence. And that's exactly what you did with Apple. Can you tell us about this case? They were fined 25 million euros by the French government for, for breaching this planned obsolescence law, and you brought that case against Apple. Can you tell us about that? Yes, exactly. So um, we filed these complaints in the end of uh, 2017, uh, because we we noticed that uh, there was there were a lot of people experiencing uh, malfunctions of their iPhones uh, when they updated the operating system. So basically, people had problems after updating their their operating system. They had like their battery emptying very quickly, or just the phone in general being very slow. And uh, we gathered over 15,000 uh, testifies of uh, people who had this kind of problems. And so we decided to file this complaint for a planned obsolescence and also unfair commercial practices. And uh, Apple was just fined 25 million euros uh, by the French authorities after more than two years of... Uh, of uh, investigation by the authorities. But unfortunately, the only thing we regret is that there won't be a, f- a public trial on the plan of license. So that's the only downside to the situation, I guess. And, and as you mentioned, in 2015, uh, the f- France... Pro- passed a planned obsolescence law which made it illegal to deliberately reduce the lifespan of products to encourage replacement. How did that come about? So there were debates since maybe 2013 around how to make consumption more sustainable, etc. 
And one first step was a law about unconsumption in 2014, which already um, included several uh, dispositions on spare parts, for instance. So spare parts had to be more um, easily accessible for repair, etc. Uh, there was also something about uh, the legal guarantee of products, so to make it easier to apply. And um, what it changed is that when you had a problem with your guarantee, it was the manufacturer's uh, job to to actually prove that the problem um, didn't exist before and not the consumer's uh, role. So that was very important to apply the guarantee in an easier way. And so I think at this time there were a, bit, a big debates around planned obsolescence and if we can ban it or not. But it took um, more than two years to actually reach the law and uh, and uh, become a reality. So it's good, but it took a while. And do you think that was a social movement that made that possible? Or was it, uh, you know, because we're always interested in this podcast on how change happens as well as what change should happen. What do you think was the key thing that, that forced this change in the law? I think uh, it was a combination of things. Uh, there certainly is more awareness around planned obsolescence in France than in other countries. I, I think the term is more uh, commonly known. And it's also the work of some senators, uh, especially green ones, who worked on the topic and uh, have been very yeah, voluntary to put it in the law. So I think that's what made it happen you're not stopping at apple you've moved on to or you are also bringing a case against the printer manufacturer epson um t tell us about yep. that so first we did a an investigation on printers because uh when you think about planned obsolescence it's one of the first products that comes to mind and we had had a lot of complaints about them so we decided to actually uh investigate sort of what was going on what were the problems or potential issues with durability, repairability of these specific products. For instance, are, are there um, faults that come back uh, on every product, this kind of thing? So we released a report, and based on the evidence, we decided to file a complaint actually against several um, manufacturers, not only Epson, it's just uh, the investigation focused specifically on Epson. And what one of the first uh, or the most striking striking things that we noticed in our report is that sometimes when your printer tells you to to change the ink cartridge, actually the cartridge can sometimes still have up to forty percent of the ink still inside. Wow! Uh, and this is a big problem because uh, because just of the price of the ink, which is uh, about in France, it's about. Uh, 2300 euros for a liter of ink which is uh, much more expensive than a lot of luxury perfumes for instance so that was one of the things that we noticed in the base of our complaints can you tell us about the anti-waste laws in france it seems that they're more ambitious than many other countries i know the uh, the french parliament passed new laws in december tell us what those are and what the background is to this this was a quite important law um, just voted in the parliament in the end of uh, December last year. Um, 
This law actually followed a sort of roadmap for circular economy that was announced in France in 2018. And um, it, it has a very wide scope. It deals with uh, waste and uh, also uh, premature obsolescence and production and consumption. And uh, it was very much enriched by our members of parliament. And basically, one of the, f the, the most important measures that were added is uh, a durability scoring system to better recognize uh, durable products. So starting 2024, when you go to uh, a shop in France to buy an electronic product, you will have a score um, of 1 to 10 telling you how easy to, how durable the product will be. So how wow. repairable, how solid the materials will be. So uh, if you have a phone that is uh, 10 out of 10, then you can probably trust better that it's it's more durable than a phone that has a worse grade. You've given me an idea, Adele. I mean, surely on the packages, we should have like a health warning, like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, this, this product can seriously damage the planet, which is the version some version of that health warning we have on cigarette packages or you know it could there could be a sort of warning to consumers couldn't there yeah exactly actually that's one of our proposals we published a, a white paper in february last year and that was one of our proposals to put like a sort of message like we do in health messages to say like try to keep your products for a number of years before you dispose of it or think or even just think about uh donating it or selling it when it comes when you really want a, a new product for instance i like the idea of that we have a utopia on the podcast called the jeffocracy if if we were to invite you into this I utopia it's not a very french tradition no the there'll be plenty of liberty no no but it's a very egalitarian i feel it's in the tr in a egalite, fraternity no, don't do you just try to sort of bluster here it's, <laughs> i feel like it's in a sort of monarchical tradition but 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 maybe adele can be saying i would be victim of a revolution yeah but but anyway, if we, if we appointed you uh, uh, the head of uh, obsolescence. obsolescence, yeah, combating ob <laughs> built-in obsolescence, what is the first thing that in, in a government could be... Uh, and you have complete power, uh, Adele, uh, in Jeff's um, Jeffocracy to, to, to do what you want. One of the first things I would do is uh, to put just mandatory um, norms on durability and repairability for a really wide range of products because I think um, a lot of policy around uh, plant obsolescence is directed at consumers. It's aimed at making consumers make better choices, etc. But uh, it's important not to forget that it's also the responsibility of the manufacturer to make better products. And so to encourage that, I think we really need some actual constraints on uh, spare parts have to be available for like 10 years. We have to have uh, products that are easy to disassemble, etc. So I think it's uh, important to really um, address the manufacturer's side and not only just believe in the free consumer choice that will solve everything. Okay, well, look, that's very convincing. Uh, Adele Chasson, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you. So what did you think? I mean, I, I'm delighted that I can take my vacuum cleaner somewhere to get it fixed. I know I'm not great at a party, but I, th I think maybe a repair party could be the, the well, one for me. Maybe that's a way, the kind of party you want to go to, because it doesn't sort of, it's, there's not a sort of socialisation purpose. There's a bit of purpose to the yeah. party, yeah, beyond just the socialising. Um, 
But I do. I mean, I feel very guilty about some of the things we talked about. Do upgrading you really, fa- though? Yes. Yeah, especially about buying a new that? printer. Are you just saying that to a- impress Alice? No, I feel guilty because I bought a new printer because there was a paper yeah. jam. But I think a lot of people of, you know, yeah. my millennial generation, borderline millennial generation, do feel like we don't have those kind of skills that you people growing up post-war had. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, Spirit of the Blitz. I... I, I um. I think it's sort of encouraged me to think about this much more, but I, I think it's it's one of those things that happens sort of you know inside the black box, and so you don't quite think it through. That you just think, oh well, Apple have come up with a nicer iPhone. You know, you don't really think about all of the sort of things that are going. You know, oh, I can't get it replaced, or you know, I can't find an accessory. You don't can't really change think, the battery. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. You can't sort of. You don't sort of think. Well, this is all part of making you just buy lots more because it's their business model i mean that is part of the problem isn't it it is it is a business model but it does sound from the french experience um that you know you can you can have an impact and that rating system the newly passed rating system sound i mean i thought was quite impressed by that sounds like it could really make a difference reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've got thoughts about what you've heard on this week's episode about the right to repair or ideas for future episodes, please go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find ways to get in touch with us. Now, this one comes from somebody who'd prefer to withhold their name, but we think it's a really interesting um, uh, email and indeed one of a number of interesting emails we had about our episode, Man Enough, Promoting Positive Masculinity. Dear Ed and Jeff, I was thrilled to listen to this week's podcast on the subject of masculinity. It's a subject close to my heart as I helped to run Men's Lib, an online men's forum dedicated to exploring masculinity in a positive and mutually supportive way. We were found in 2015, a full two years before the Me Too movement, as a constructive response to the often hateful and misogynistic men's rights movement. Since then, we've grown to 113,000 members from all over the world and held discussions on topics including mental health and suicide, domestic violence and paternity leave. We also maintain a wiki of organisations dedicated to helping men in as many countries as we can. We take our name from the men's liberation movement in the 1970s, which saw itself as aligned with feminism, not in opposition to it. I think the discussion around the much maligned term toxic masculinity was missing some historical context. Rather than being a recent feminist invention, it actually has its roots in the mythopoetic men's movement, mentioned briefly by Nathan Roberts at the end of your show. When the term was first coined, it had a more positive counterpart named deep masculinity, incorporating traits such as strength and self-reliance. If you're interested in finding out more, you can find us at www.reddit.com, Men's Lib, where our weekly free Talk Friday threads are a good place to get to know us. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. Right. This comes from Sam Hill. What the Sam Hill is going on here? It's what they say in films when they would be dubbing out the profanity. Mm, Interesting. Instead of what the hell. Um, It says the podcast is really helping my PhD. 
Dear Jeff and Ed, I hope you're both well. I discovered your podcast last year and just wanted to say it's been a great resource for me. I'm studying for a PhD in politics and a lot of the topics that you've covered are very relevant to the things I'm discussing. Uh, it was a fantastic idea to add in discussion about how these big ideas could be implemented and I look forward to hearing more. Also, while studying for my PhD, I work in a supermarket. It's normally quite a boring job, but one time... Ed actually came into the store. Wow. I thought it would be rude to ask him a load of questions about politics, so I got on with my job. However, as he was doing his shopping, he rammed me with his trolley. I don't think he (laughs) (laughs) realised... I don't like the thought of you being in charge of a shopping trolley, especially one of the ones with a squeaky errant wheel. I, do, I think There's I need a, a sort of driving license. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Um, I don't think he realised, and I just left it, but now that moment is what I remember every time someone mentions <laughs> Have Has Ed careered into you with a shopping trolley? Maybe a luggage trolley at a train station or de- an airport? Oh, definitely. I'm sure uh, that's... If so, let I'm us know. I'm sure that is possible. We'll, try and get a, we'll, we'll get a map of the world and then put a pin in every location that you've careened into someone. Or spilt somebody, spilt yeah. some kind of you know liquid substance, yeah, yeah. food, or, or, or any of the above, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but uh, thanks for telling us about that, Sam Hill. This one comes from Annabelle E. Gladstone Allen. What a great name! Hearing Jeff talk about finding podcasts, which are a bit soporific, I never get to the end of an episode of Reasons to Be Cheerful. That's oh, you, you miss our outros. As I always, uh, there's another bit actually. Uh-huh. To be fair, uh, as I always fall asleep before I get to the end. Okay, Annabelle E. Gladstone, Alice, this has got to get better. I always listen the next day. Phew. Fast forwarding to the last part, I do remember. Don't get me wrong, I love the podcast. I never miss an episode. I just always listen to it in two parts. Annabelle Gladstone. Well, as long as you get into the bit where we labour, we labour over know, it but every I week. I think he's been. Uh, yeah, he's I, been, I, yeah, honestly, yeah. I don't know. We've never had a, a word of appreciation <laughs> for our hopeless sort of Outro bad dad, off, yeah. bad dad puns. Yeah. I mean, really. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. Now, in our cheerful people slot, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Larry Sanders, older brother of Bernie Sanders, frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. Um, Larry uh, is lived in the UK since 1969. He gave an emotional speech casting his vote for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Uh, and we're talking to him ahead of the Democrats abroad uh, primary. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm very pleased to be talking with you. Let's start at the sort of beginning, so to speak. What was it like growing up with Bernie or Bernard, as I interestingly <laughs> you called him? It was very unexciting. <laughs> We're a very kind of normal family. What did your parents uh, but, do, uh, Larry? My father was a paint salesman. He migrated from Poland uh, in, in um, 1921. Uh, when he was 17 years old. It was only when my children were 17 that I realized what it meant for somebody to come without any money and any word of the language to a foreign country. Um, So I I hadn't appreciated when we were growing up what he faced. Uh, My mother was was born in New York. Her parents came from Poland, uh, all all Jewish uh, people, of course. And what was it about your, we'll come on to Bernie's first election in a minute, but what was it about your childhood that that sort of drove you both in different ways into the sort of political arena? 
Well, it, it was not for, essentially from home. Our parents were not political animals. They were very deeply committed to and loved Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, but they didn't go to meetings or join groups or, or even read political material. Um, on the other hand, I think it's fair to say that the depth of the uh, political feeling amongst the, this huge Jewish migration to New York between 1880 and 1920, I guess, um, they were very, very left-wing. It, it was a combination of whatever they brought with them, and then they faced really kind of brutal capitalism, uh, especially, you know, some of them had money, but the vast majority were like my father. And they had, and they were at the mercy of, of employers who, who were not nice. And I think that brought out all this pent-up emotion, but it was all aimed in one direction. It was said, every, what Bernard's slogan has become, everybody's entitled to a decent life. Government is a vital part of creating that possibility. So we knew that. We absolutely knew that. And Bernie's first election was, I gather, when he stood to be student body president at James Madison High School in Brooklyn. <laughs> Tell us about That's that. That's right. Well, it, that was a surprise to me. He hadn't talked about that sort of thing before. Uh, but he put himself up, and uh, there were three candidates, all three boys. Um, Bernard was the only one with a substantial platform. The others were fairly trivial school-type things, crumbs or whatever. Bernard ha had a program based on raising money for Korean orphans of Korean... Uh, this would have been the 1950s, is that right? This is, this is the... Uh, now, Bernard was uh, in the late 50s. Late 50s. And, and you had probably millions of children who had lost their parents. Uh, the school system required payment, so they had no money to pay. They were really you know, in a terrible situation. And Bernard read about it somewhere, and he made it his platform. And what's even more interesting, in a way, he, the... the person who won the, the the election adopted the program. Bernard worked with him, and, and they raised a really substantial amount of money for that very good cause. And and then Bern, Bernard, Bernie's career involved being the mayor of Vermont, then... Of Burlington. Of Burlington, Vermont, I beg your pardon. Uh, and then, yep. obviously, the independent, self-described socialist... Uh, congressman, is that right? And then senator, right. and then senator, and then senator from yes. um, Vermont. Yes, uh, that's right. Would you have ever imagined him running for president at that point? Uh, did I imagine? No, <laughs> I didn't, didn't imagine. But he made a huge impact. I mean, this when he was elected mayor, uh, this was Reagan time. Um, and the country was moving to the right and all, all that. He got actually national attention. He got onto national radio programs and things. I mean, there is something very interesting, isn't it, about what it says, and we'll come on to Bernie's campaign, about the political environment, because I was living in America in 1988, and yes. Michael Dukakis, who was the then nominee, spent the whole election being afraid to describe himself as a liberal. Uh, and today yes. we've got Bernie as the front runner for the Democratic nomination, and different people have different views about whether he will get the nomination, whether he'll win the election. But as yes. a self-described socialist, what do you, what do you, as a sort of, you know, as his brother, but also as an observer of what is happening here and there and, and yes. in the US, what what do you think this this sort of betokens? Well, I think it means that that the 
that the pundits are not really correct about their assessment uh, of, of the populace. I think, but Bernard Wolfen says he's not a radical, or at least his policies are not radical. He may be radical. Um, the things he wants of a of a good universal health care system, of, of a, a minimum wage that people can actually live on, uh, free tuition for university and so on. They're pretty, if you put them to the polls, and the pollsters do do these things in both countries, uh, they're very popular. 60, 70, 80% people are in favor of them. Larry, you've lived over here for 50 years. I was wondering what parallels you see or don't see between Bernie and Jeremy Corbyn and, and perhaps then thinking about how things went for Jeremy Corbyn in the last election. Well, there are, there are some barriers, particularly in domestic uh, uh, policy. I think a lot of Corbyn's uh, policies and Bernard's policies are very close to each other. And some people have said it might be a bad sign for Bernard's election chances. I don't think so. First, because for whatever reason, Corbyn's approval, personal approval ratings went down, were very low, and burnouts tend to be either the highest or second highest, so that makes a big difference. And it also makes a big difference that the whole mess of Brexit, which made it very difficult for Corbyn to get his message across, uh, doesn't exist in America. Now, we're obviously talking to you as observers, keen observers and, and fascinated by what's happening in America, but... Also, because U.S. citizens living in the U.K. and elsewhere around the world who might be listening to this can vote in the Democrats' abroad primary. Uh, so, yeah. Larry, tell us about that. It's a very interesting system. Dem- Democrats abroad is like a small state, like Vermont. They have delegates to the, uh, to the Democratic Convention, and it's very simple to vote. If you're an American citizen and you're living or studying in, in the U.K. or in any other country around the world... All you need to do is go to the website, democratsabroad.org, and it will tell you how you register on the spot, on, online, and how you, and how you can vote. Mostly online, the polls, you can poll, you can vote right now, actually. It started from February 19th, and will close on, on March the 10th. Uh, in many cities, there are polling booths. If you go to Democrats Abroad, they'll tell you where you can vote if you would like to cast your vote in person. Do you think he's going to win the nomination? Can he win the presidency? Well, the hard part is winning the nomination, which I think he will do. Uh, I think he will destroy Trump. Trump is is nothing but a puffed-up liar, and Bernard knows exactly where all the bits are, are buried. Trump promised uh, working-class people who had been badly treated by both parties for many uh, decades that he was going to do all sorts of great things for them. The only thing he's done is, is cut taxes for the extremely rich. Uh, all the rest of it was baloney. And Bernard's policies are good for the people who have been left behind. And I think he'll get it across. And I think he'll do extremely well. And do you think he can attract the voters who aren't necessarily the most left-wing democratic inclined voters in other words can he move if he does get the nomination from success in the primary to the to the to the, to the sort of voters who might make the difference well bernard's vote already is not uh, by any means confined to people who identify themselves as very uh, liberal or very left-wing in fact i think probably the most noticeable category that he's attracting is people with uh, with low incomes and young people 
and young people keep getting older and older. I mean, I see he's, he's leading up to up to the age of fifty, which is not a usual definition of young. I consider person. that young, but I I consider it childlike. Oh well, thank you, few, few, Larry. Well, look, that is that is good. Well, Larry, look, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. Um, thank you very, very much. I know you'll be very probably staying up all hours watching debates and, and results. And uh, and uh, it's a real pleasure to speak to you. Oh, it's been very nice speaking to you. Thank you very much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Oh, we're in the outro and you've got an email you're excited about. Yes, we're having this competition to see who lives in an unusual place. Most exotic location. Yeah, Mark Oxley, I think, I think is, is kind of going to be temporarily top of the leaderboard. It's entitled Message, All Right, You Ask for Furthest Listeners. So, I was listening to the four-day week podcast while making hummus in my kitchen and the cats ran around me while my partner slept in sunny Shenzhen, China. We're wow. still in lockdown over the coronavirus, so I've turned to cooking to alleviate boredom. It's a city of 50 million people just a day trip away from sweaty Hong Kong. According to the website, I checked on the distance from my hometown in Yorkshire to Shenzhen, the distance of nearly 11,400 miles. That's extremely exciting. Mark Oxley, wow. It's good to know that we're not blocked by uh, the Chinese government as well. Yeah, that's well, just let's say to the Chinese censors if they're listening. Hi. Hello. Big shout out to the Chinese yeah, censors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and if they'd like to email in... Yeah, I mean, you, you, you don't just need to compete on distance. It's interesting location and perhaps interesting activity. I mean, it was the yeah. hummus that made that for me. You're a big hummus fan. Oh, I love it. Just got to get the right amount of cumin in there, I think. My oldest son, if you could only eat one thing all day, every day, he'd eat hummus. Not doing much to uh, shatter the myth of you being a I'm stereotypical really, North London politician, I'm not are really, you? no, I know. Um, look, but, you know, hummus is quite healthy, isn't he? I think so. I mean... In moderation, you've got to moderate. Is there any hummus that you make your own sandwich shop? I mean, now you're now that you mention it, <laughs> definitely. We should thank our guests. Why don't we thank our guests? I'd like to thank Janet Gunter, Duncan McCann, and Adele Chasson. And thanks to Hey Now. What does that sign say? It says applesauce. Only kidding. It says applause. That's what Hank used to say at the beginning of every single Is episode. Right? I miss that show. I do too. Let's do a rewatch. Yeah, if you've never seen it, treat yourself to the box set. It's, it's anyway, astonishing television. But thanks, thanks to Larry the other Larry Sanders, Sanders yeah. brother of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> All right, then uh, he's been. No, um, uh, uh, I'm a caution producer <laughs> podcast with backup and research from yeah. Joe Kenyon and Joel Pierce. Ed C did our music. James Deacon did our idents, and our artwork was produced by Henry Cole. Nothing for Gail Lofthouse this week, then. And our announcer <laughs> was Gail Lofthouse. How could I forget? Just because I'm not as practised as you are at doing the credits. Uh, apart from the fact that I completely forgot the credits and you had to no, wade in and save me. Indeed. So we, it's now time for everybody's favourite part of the podcast, our little sign-off. He's been underground, overground, wombling free. He's been the wombles of Wimbledon coming away. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 